All right. Here we go. Quiet. Quiet. And welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put it all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me in the new year is Film Buff Online Editor-in-Chief, Rich Drees! And seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online Contributing Editor... And birthday girl, Natasha Bogutsky. How was yesterday? Happy Here. birthday. Happy <sighs> New Year's. It's all, hey, look, I know, you know, obviously off mic, you know, we hung out, we had some food, and we celebrated your birthday. I'm but- like Peter Pan, I never, ever, 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 ever want to grow up. Yuck. <laughs> well. That was from Hook. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, we don't really have much of a choice in the matter. But, happy birthday, Thank you. Publicly. You're Thank welcome. You. You're welcome. And um, again, Happy New Year. It's 2021. Woo! We Thank all freaking survived. Goodness. Well, well yeah. Well, if you're listening to it, you survived. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, let's... Moving on. Yeah. Um, it's been a strange, strange year. More so than usual. Uh, obviously, with COVID and everything, disrupting theatrical exhibition, TV production... It's made trying to figure out my best of list kind of weird and also kind of I feel bad that there's still things I haven't gotten to. Are you freaking kidding me? Shut up. You did 218 movies this year and I didn't even break 100. I know. Go throw yourself out the window. (laughs) Well, not all of those 218 (laughs) movies were 2020 releases, obviously. That doesn't matter. You still did... 218 films. I did the math on that. That's over like 600 hours. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and that still means, you know, I was catching up on a lot of stuff. I mean, I know I've mentioned before uh, a lot of Criterion Channel watching, especially back in the spring when they had that set of Columbia Noir films on. That was like about 25 movies right there on my list. Watched a lot of stuff. And I think a lot of people watched a lot of stuff. And we took a lot of time to... uh Go back and play catch up on certain things. I mean, there's still a few things I haven't seen from this year that I really feel I should before I can kind of close the door on 2020. I haven't watched The Five Bloods yet. Neither have I. Um, Not that I haven't wanted to. I just, to be honest, I freaking forgot about it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. No, no. I mean, that's fine. Uh, There's been so much going on, even though we've all been kind of staying home, that it's it's weird. I mean, some of the stuff I've seen through virtual cinema stuff for film festivals, some of the stuff, you know, has been VOD drops. Some of the stuff has been streaming premieres. And yet at the same time, you know, it, none of it, it doesn't feel quite as urgent because, oh, it's going to be on. Yeah, I know it's over on Hulu. I know it's over on HBO Max. So sometimes getting to it right when it comes out, if that doesn't happen to then I kind of put it to the side and I have to kind of make a steady effort to get back to it. Surprisingly, during the first couple of weeks of quarantine, um, I actually didn't watch really anything at all. Like I spent I spent the rest of the that time and I was 
reading. I was writing. Oh, my God. I wrote a 70-page script in like three days. Yeah, I know. It was ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was that was in the first week. Mm -hmm. um, then I started picking back up and relearning French again. And uh, there was some gardening and housework and remodeling that got done. Um, I took I took the time to kind of step away since I knew that there really wasn't going to be a lot being released. I was either catching up with things that I had never seen before, or I was just not really doing any watching at all. I know there was a night that you came over and we watched um, the stage version of Fleabag, mm -hmm. which was the night that for the first time in what five years i got the hiccups because i laughed so hard <laughs> that's the first time in the six years i've known you that that's happened <laughs> oh my god six years yep and the stage show of fleabag sent me on a fleabag kick which mm -hmm. we'll get to in a little bit mainly i stuck to more television than anything else Maybe because it was just easier to pop in an episode while I was doing something or mm -hmm. you know, just to have it playing in the background while I'm you know, chopping up vegetables or <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> okay. No, that's fair. So it's been such a weird year and such an unstructured year in terms of TV and film that I just think that, you know, we can just talk in an unstructured way, not in like a structured five four three two one countdown of the best of the year of good what we thought. because you can't do that with my list i'm all <laughs> over the place <laughs> that's true but you know what are you know let's kind of just go back and forth and we'll start with you mm -hmm. you know what was one of the one of the, your favorite things that you saw this year west wing okay i caught up with west wing during my uh quarantine in preparation for our great you know old man contest that was happening in November. <laughs> I thought, you know, I love newsroom. I'm a bit, I'm an Aaron Sorkin writing fan. I, but West Wing was always one of those. I watched the first season, season and a half, and I couldn't get into it. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just because I was being forced to watch it at the time. And it wasn't something that I had an interest to, but, um, over the past couple of years, I've gained more of an interest in politics and the process of it and the process of, you know, elections and stuff like that. And so I finally sat myself down and I watched West Wing from start to finish. It is a great show to watch if you want to learn how the sausage is made. Yes. And it is so good. It's so witty. And you know how I was shipping Donna and Josh in that final <laughs> season. I'm like, come on. She left you. Her hotel room key. Why didn't you just pick it up, you dumbass, before someone else did? <laughs> <laughs> you were getting calls from me just randomly going, what the fuck is his problem? Yeah, I know. It was it was like, and I haven't watched West Wing in probably about five years or so. So I'm like randomly scrambling through my brain going, um, uh, what, what, what episode is she talking about? Wait, do I need to go to Wikipedia and look something up here really quick? You never told me that. <laughs> I didn't. And then they announced but... the West Wing reunion for HBO Max, mm -hmm. and I freaking fangirled because I had just finished West Wing for the first time by, what, two and a half weeks? Something like that? And then the announcement came, yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, what? What? 
<laughs> go to lemonlimon.com, purchase my post hoc ergo propter hoc t shirt to wear first. <laughs> West Wing was one of the greatest that I caught up with. Yes. Okay. Um, How now, about you? now, I did not watch a lot of TV. Um, but you were on the movie side. I yes. covered the television I side. I definitely was on the t- <laughs> movie side. Um, I know we said there weren't a lot of big releases in 2020, but I think right now, not the best 2020 release I've seen, but I think my most favorite, I actually have two that are kind of tied with each other. Okay. One, and I'm sure you're not going to be surprised. Actually, you're not going to be surprised by either one of these. Uh, The first is Bill and Ted Face the Music. Not surprised. I almost put that on my list, but I knew you were going to cover it, and I didn't want to take it away (laughs) from you. (laughs) There's there's something that was just so pure and joyful about it. It was the singing in the rain of this year. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It, It ends with a high note, literally, and you feel good coming out of it. Mm -hmm. There's, I honestly don't know how anybody could watch that movie and not like it. It just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, Bill and Ted Face the Music was definitely a high note in 2020. Yeah, and I think in our review, I mentioned that doing a legacy sequel like that is tricky. Because when you come back to something so many years later, you're not quite sure you're going to be able to capture that lightning in a bottle again. And Anchorman is something that, you know, I love the first Anchorman. The second film is it's nice to see the characters again, but it's just not as good. Yeah. This, I think, is right on par with the other two. And I think it might be better, actually. And it all boils down to the scene where they're talking to their old age selves oh in the God. nursing home mm-hmm. or in the hospital. And uh, I don't think I ever really knew you, Ted, as Ted is saying to Ted. Mm-hmm. And... uh and that was just one of the purest, most beautiful, actual moments I've ever seen. There's a lot more emotional resonance and thematical material there mm-hmm. than in the first two films. Yeah. And I appreciate that because, you know, I'm roughly Bill and Ted's age. So I that's something, you know, I very much vibed into. And I was like, yeah, I absolutely get this. Boom. This is a movie that... I feel is speaking directly to my experiences in certain ways. Fears about the future, fears you haven't fulfilled your destiny or what you feel your destiny should have been. It's just an amazing, an amazing film. And like I said, it could have gone wrong in so many ways. And it's just a miracle of a little film that absolutely positively works. Mm -hmm. Now, the other film that... I really, 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 really loved this year was Palm Springs. I know. You keep asking me to go watch it. I know. Because (laughs) something happens in there that's amazing. And I don't want you to be spoiled for it. I want you to have the experience of the surprise. Um, I haven't been spoiled on anything because no one except you has been talking about that movie to me. Missed out film Twitter then back in. Oh, I'm off whenever. Twitter. Oh, okay. I'm well. I'm on Twitter. I just don't go on Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, except except when I send you something. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Or uh, unless Richard Schiff is saying something. <laughs> <laughs> but it or encompassed Bradley. a mood, uh, very accidentally, of the early quarantine period, in a way. 
and it became a very movie of the moment. This movie's going to play well no matter when you watch it, but right at that moment, there were things about it that played especially well. And again, that's just a little minor miracle that those things kind of lined up and conflated the way they did. Obviously, when they made the movie a year and a half ago or whatever, they didn't know this was going to happen. But that it did and it all kind of lined up like that is still, to me, you know, just amazing. And it kind of speaks to the fact that a lot of this stuff that we saw this year, we're going to be looking at through the, you know, the eyes of COVID, so to speak. The Tribeca Film Festival, one of the films I watched while sitting here on my couch um, was about a nurse who was doing some illegal, shady, drug-dealing stuff on the side. And she's the protagonist of the movie, but she's not necessarily a heroine, if you know what I mean. She's doing a lot of bad stuff. The movie doesn't necessarily sympathize with her, and that's perfectly fine. But seeing that in the middle of April, when nationally we are lionizing our health workers – and praising them for, you know, being on the front lines of this pandemic and risking their lives and everything. And then along comes a movie where it's like, eh, this nurse is a piece of garbage. It was kind of weird to sit there and watch it. I'm like going, maybe, you know, this is a good film, but maybe this is not the proper time to be watching it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't really have a film that kind of gave me that feeling, but I did have part part of a tv show a season of a tv show did that for me this season uh for this year okay um the crown actually well half of the crown uh for this for season four we are now in the early to mid early late-ish years of the 80s and um we are now talking a great deal about Prince Charles and Princess Diana's relationship from the moment that they met to right up around when right after when Harry is born and the undertones of feeling trapped in a building with a family who you finally start to see them for what they are not so much what everyone has made them out to be but once you are finally with them for a long period of time Mm -hmm. and uh yeah i was getting some covid vibes off (laughs) (laughs) feeling trapped with a family who you're not quite certain you want to be around for long periods of time um yikes (laughs) But um, speaking of COVID, the other thing that happened um, during COVID was the Black Lives Matter movement just Mm -hmm. really exploded. And one of my greatest films of this year is not so much a film as it is more of a live stage show that really kind of speaks to the heart of uh, that movement and the heart of this country, um, Hamilton. Very much so, yes. I, I've got to put Hamilton at the top of my best of 2020 list. It was just so captivating to watch. I was not a fan of Hamilton. Let me just say that. Years ago when it blew up everywhere, I was not a fan of the music. I tried listening to it three times on a long car drive and uh, I didn't really chime in on it. And then I, I said, you know what, when it finally hit Disney Plus streaming, I was just like, yeah, let's sit down, 
you were with me, my husband was with me, mm-hmm. and let's start watching this. And boy, I have never been so fucking wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I've never been so wrong. I could probably think of something, but <laughs> continue. <laughs> I was wrong about the music. I was wrong about the energy and just, I thought the anachronism of the idea of putting African-American actors and and diverse actors in a time period where, you know, these are not the roles that they would have had. Or obviously George Washington would not be played by this gentleman. Uh, At first I was, you know, years ago when that happened, I went, no. Why? It's not faithful historically. And then watching it, I finally just didn't give a shit. Because <laughs> it was just so well done. And the amount of research that went into it, Lynn manuels use of rhyming technique is, I think, in Hamilton, I would say is one of the greatest since fucking Shakespeare. It just comes mm-hmm. out so naturally. A lot of times it just feels like you're just having a conversation and just talking but it's all in a rhyme scheme and you don't even realize it's in a rhyme scheme and it just makes you feel things so I much. I believe that's called flow. <laughs> Go away. I know, middle-aged white guy here. Um, now, now, it's funny that you mentioned how Hamilton kind of has a certain resonance now with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Another stage show that was released as a concert movie, basically, mm-hmm. also had that residence within it. And that's um, David Byrne's American Utopia. Is that on your list? Yes. yes it is. Of course. No, I, no, <laughs> I didn't it, catch it, actually. I'm sorry. It is on HBO Max. All right. So, I mean, obviously, first of all, you know, it's a lot of talking heads and um, his own solo stuff, all material that he's kind of reworked musically a little bit in terms of, like, the composition and the arrangements but the film also kind of has like a th- – the concert has like a through line about being an American today and what that means and trying to make this country better. How do we go about that? How do we think about that? What are the ways we can do that? And one of the songs in there um, actually very much directly addresses Black Lives Matter. And I don't want to say too much if you haven't seen it. I want that to be an experience for you because it's very powerful in the middle of the the show. If you have seen it, you obviously know what I'm talking about. And again, that was something that just kind of, again, very much resonant and part of the moment that, you know, they were lucky enough to be able to include back when they filmed the show back in November of 2019. So it has that rough immediacy to it, which is nice and very exciting. So I guess from that, was there any new shows? Because I don't think you've talked about anything that's brand new from 2020 yet. No, I did. I talked about The Crown. Oh, the Crown. No, no. Well, that was – no, I mean like new, brand new first season in 2020. Oh, um, I've only got one thing that really kind of stuck out to me. I mean some of these certain shows that I have on my list, uh, Fleabag obviously ended in 2019 or mm-hmm. 20. 2019 or 2018 and it was fantastic i finally caught up with it um west wing's been over for (laughs) a minute Um, (laughs) i caught up with the new season of killing eve um this year but new new first season 
it's not really a first season. It's just a mini series, The Queen's Gambit, on Netflix. Okay. Uh, about a female chess player in the 1960s uh, who, at the age of 22, tries to become grandmaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so interesting to watch. I am a female chess player. Obviously, I'm female uh, <laughs> chess player, um, and I have played since I was six years old. It is a great solace to me, and I find it also to be very therapeutic um, for when I can't focus on anything. It allows me to work, allow my brain to bounce within the 64 squares on the board. And that was something that kind of resonated with me when I was watching it. And Anya Taylor-Joy makes this show. This, for me, I've, I've seen her in, in Glass and The Witch. And, you know, she's been around for a while. This really showed me a new side of her acting ability. And I can't wait to see more of her work. Because this is just, this was on a different level. Mm-hmm. And it made uh, watching chess games fun again. Because, <laughs> you know, after a while it can become stagnant. But watching how people kind of strategize and figure it out and the stress, the amount of stress, you can read it on their faces. Little Tommy Sangster from Love mm-hmm. Actually grown up. <laughs> Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter is now hot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Yikes. for laughing at that. Um, but you know, all these great actors who have always just kind of been in the background and mm-hmm. were bringing you to the forefront and show me what you can do. And they sit down and most of the, the show is no talking because you're in the middle of a chess game, but you get to see how their brain bounces the pieces all over the place, trying to come up with the best idea and reading their opponent like... In Casino Royale, when James Bond is trying to read Le Chiffre and back and forth, there is that tension at the table that Mm -hmm. makes it so intoxicating to watch. And that's got to be something, from a directorial standpoint, very hard to capture. Yeah. How do you... You know, make, make chess look exciting. (laughs) Two people sitting there staring at a board, interesting and exciting and suspenseful. Mm Mm-hmm. And this does it. This mm-hmm. this really doesn't on on a level that I've not seen before in, you know, when you're doing poker or when you're doing, you know, regular sports. If you're doing soccer or hockey, I mean, well, hockey, obviously, it's going to end up in a fist fight. So that's exciting <laughs> to watch. But <laughs> I, I mean, team games are one thing, but it, when it's one on one, there is something more intimate about it. And they kind of hone in on that and say, we are going to put you right there in the heart of the board. So we're going, you're going to see more extreme close-ups of, you know, the eyes darting back and forth and them reading each other, reading their opponent, sizing up their facial features, their neck muscles going, you know, trying to figure out where they're going to blunder or when's a missed opportunity. And then you also get to see how the board moves back and forth. And watching it, I've actually spoken to a few friends who don't play chess. They say, I actually understood what was going on with that board. I'm like, you don't play chess. But no, 
the TV show educates you enough about the moves of chess and how each piece plays Mm -hmm. that you can follow along with what's going on, even if you've never played before. And that's important when your television show or movie kind of hinges on certain gameplay, Mm -hmm. like Casino Royale, where they, you know, kind of give you the rules about poker in the movie, or Casino Royale, the book. I've often joked that, uh, you know. know. They're playing Baccarat. (laughs) Yeah, they're playing Baccarat in the book. And as I read the book, I absolutely understand the gameplay for Baccarat. And then you forget it. Five minutes later, nope, it's right out of my mind. And I don't think that Ian Fleming gets a lot of credit as a great writer. He's a good writer. He's a pulpy writer. He Mm -hmm. wrote some great stories. But the fact that he can make Baccarat understandable within the context of the story I think is a tremendous it's a useful credit skill. To yeah. yeah, and one of the things I have I have to give credit to the Queen's Gambit for is bringing people together. I was talking about Queen's Gambit with some old chess buddies from high school that I haven't seen in seven, yeah, about seven eight years at this point. And right after the TV show came out, we had all watched it. We're just like, yeah, we need to get back together and go play chess. And I'm like, well, I keep a board in my car at all times in case I, I need it to to play myself for stress purposes. And, oh, okay, when are you free? Um, how about two hours from now at the Olive Garden? <laughs> <laughs> are you available? And they're like, yeah, I'm off today. I'm like, perfect. So we would just go and grab a drink and catch up, play a couple of games, and look at each other and go... You haven't lost your touch. I'm like, no, neither of you. Because it would be, I lost one, I won one, and then we stalemated on the third. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think that's kind of important is seeing how a TV show can bring people together even after many, many years of not seeing or speaking to each other. It was just, you know, it tapped into that part of... You know, your psyche that you've been wasting since high school (laughs) when you were in the chess club and when chess was like a big thing. Like, don't tell Miss Major this. I skipped out on a couple of chorus classes so I could be, you know, up there in the chess room. (laughs) (laughs) And if she knew, she'd throttle me. If she's listening, you might want to apologize now. Sorry, Mage. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Um, but it's interesting that, again, it's it's a movie – or excuse me, it's a television show that kind of sparked reaching out after being quarantined. Yeah. And reigniting you – know, again, it's we're always seeing everything through these stupid COVID lenses right now, unfortunately, you know, and that's just the way we're experiencing life. Um, I think that show still would have been a hit and it still would have resonated with you – even if it were, even if things were normal. Well, one of the major things that resonated with me about was being the only female chess player who could match up. And when I was in the chess club in my school, I was the only female player. And I actually had to play our tournament champion in order to get in because they often had girls come by who would just they they wouldn't play. They signed up for chess club, but they wouldn't play. They were there to fawn over the boys. And I said, no, I'm here to play. And they didn't believe me. So I had to earn my way in. And being the only female there, 
that part of the story resonated with me as, you know, I I could be playing against the captain of the football team and we run in completely different circles. I was in drama. He was on the football team or this person from this other clique or whatever. But when we were in the chess club, mm-hmm. we were all equals. And it was the one time where it doesn't matter who you are outside of it. You come here to play. You treat each other with the respect that you show another player. And that is carried over. So like I said, we haven't seen each other in eight years. We go to play a game and it was like nothing had changed. <laughs> and I, to be able to do that, I that is a credit to the Queen's Gambit. That's really great. <laughs> I can't say I've had too many films this year at all, really, that have kind of sparked that kind of effect in me. There have been films that have spoken to me that I've kind of, especially with, you know, and I think I've mentioned this before, you know, both of my parents are in a nursing home now with uh, various issues. Uh, because of COVID, I haven't seen either of them in almost a year now, in almost a year. The last time was like in February. And that's rough. Yeah. So there's been things um, that I've found that I've been connecting with that at least have like a bit of a melancholy edge to them. That isn't melancholia? (laughs) No, not that. (laughs) I Um, started watching that during quarantine. I didn't finish it because it was just one of those. (sighs) (laughs) It's heavy. Well, yes. Um, No, but it kind of. That um, kind of, I don't want to say examinations of getting ready to die or anything like that, but things that deal with, you know, some of those like, some of the heavier stuff about life that maybe at your age, you're not really thinking as much about as might be on my mind. Yeah. Honestly. Um, I know I oftentimes profess my love for uh, the trip series. And the the last one that came out this year, which is the last of the four films, called The Trip to Greece, very much dealt with um, a subtext about mortality and kind of feeling that weight on your shoulders after a while, after being around for so long. And that was something I was like, okay, they know this is going to be the last movie in the series, at least for now. So it kind of makes sense that that's what you want to deal with. It's it's the end of the movie series. It's the end of Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon playing these comedic versions of themselves. In a way, they're allowing these exaggerated versions of themselves to, to – once they stop playing them, they kind of die in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of you – know, you feel that in the film. The film's still very funny. The st- film still has some great... But it's bittersweet. Yeah, it's bittersweet. And that was something I was just like, wow. I kind of really like clicked right in in the film when I was watching it back in the spring when it came out. And um, I'm just kind of taking a look here. One of the other uh, films that was at least high on my um, on my list of films this year was the documentary Some Kind of Heaven which played the Philadelphia Film Festival and then later got a um, video-on-demand release. And it's about um, crumbs. I can't name remember the name of the community. It's a planned retirement community mm-hmm. in Florida, near Orlando. And you go there, and basically they say, oh, it's like heaven. You can just hang out and just do stuff and play racquetball or whatever you want <laughs> to do. 
and they try to make it sound like it's the greatest place in the world. You know, you just go and you live out your retirement and your glory days and you have a, you know, wonderful time. And there's always some things underneath that that don't live up to the expectations. Some people who move there, you know, it put a financial stress on them to go there. Some people are there and they think it's going to solve their problems, but they're still lonely because their spouse died and they're trying to meet new people, but they're having trouble. And again, it it kind of brought home the fact that everybody expects, oh, retirement's going to be great. I'm going to be done with my job. I'm going to have all day to do nothing. I I'm going to go travel. I could do this. I could do that. But just doesn't flip a switch on that day you retire to to all this wonderfulness. You still have a lot of emotional baggage that you're carrying with you. And sometimes it's probably not a good idea to sit <laughs> sit at home alone with all of that going on in your head while you're there. Yeah. Um... It's, it's a great It's a great documentary. And I was really surprised by it, to be honest. I was like, I don't know about this. But I sat down, I started it, and 15 minutes in, I was totally sucked in. One thing about it, though, I did want to hit before we move on. I don't mean to interrupt. Um, a lot of the um, the setups, usually on documentaries, you're used. we're now used to seeing a lot of handheld stuff, unless it's talking heads. You know, just somebody sitting there and they point a camera at them. Mm-hmm. But anything out in the the world it's a lot of handheld camera because you know technology's to the point where we can do that really easily and it still looks good this used a lot of locked off camera stuff out in the real world when they're at like a restaurant or one of the places where you know older couples go to have a you know go square dancing and stuff like that and there's a lot of these great locked off shots that were very symmetrical and it looked a little like Wes Anderson. It didn't have that it didn't have that twee Wes Anderson feel to it, but just the symmetry of those shots was something I was just like I kind of like almost immediately picked up on. I'm like, "Wow, this is this is visually a style you don't normally see in a documentary these days." And I like that though. And I saw a lot of documentaries this year. I know documentaries are that's your area i stay out of that i'm not a big doc (laughs) guy but there was a lot of things that were coming out this year that sounded really interesting and so i was like yeah okay i you know i'll give them i'll give it an hour and a half two hours the go-go's documentary obviously i was gonna be watching no matter what obviously um still hurts that we didn't get to see that one at tribeca because the band was actually scheduled to perform Perform, after the premiere (laughs) that still hurts so bad to think about Um... not getting to see that Let's see. Uh, oh, um, just bouncing back to Anya Taylor-Joy, one of her other works made my list this year. Not New Mutants. No. <laughs> of course not. No, Emma. Oh, that's right. The, that's See, that's one of the ones that came out at the beginning of the year. And I was like, I need to get to that. And then it just slid to the side. It, no, it went straight to VOD. <laughs> I know. I, I, it's still on my list of I need to catch up with you it. You really do. It is mm-hmm. so good. It is. It feels very historically accurate in terms of costume and hairstyling and such. Like they didn't take a lot of liberties in it. And it still looks like a candy cane confectionery. <laughs> Like there's a lot of, you know, pale pinks and yellows and greens and it, it feels like a, a petite four tray. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just 
very sweet. It kind of reminds me almost of um, Marie Antoinette, the Sofia Coppola version, yes. how the, the colors in that were. But it is still, it's very well done. A um, lot of new up and coming actors in it, uh, as well as the great Bill Nye. Mm-hmm. There was a gentleman by the name of Josh O'Connor, um, who actually is playing. Here's what when the cross, you know, crossing comes into play. Um, he's Prince Charles on the crown. And okay. I remember I was watching season three. I was catching up with season three of The Crown during quarantine. Uh, and I'm like, who is this guy? I know I've seen him before. God damn, he's good as Charles. Who is he? And then I went back and I was looking at his filmography and I went, oh, fuck, it's Mr. Elton from Emma. <laughs> it was like two completely opposite characters. And he was fantastic as both. Um, I would definitely check out Emma if you have the opportunity to it's a great little you know quirky comedy if you love jane austen this is definitely for you now one movie from the beginning of the year that i'm glad i did catch almost immediately invisible man really yes i've heard mixed on that really Uh I, i a lot of people that i know you know and a lot of my critic friends are also lean into a lot of fantasy and horror and science fiction and they all have, you know, were like super high on the movie. I was like, okay, let me check this out. And man, oh, sakes alive is this thing. <laughs> it's exciting. It's scary as heck. There's a few times that it got me jumping and I'm not an easy, you know. You're not an easy jumper. No. Um, <laughs> I think I think both of us know how these things work mechanically. Mechanically, too, but too I much. still, I'm a, I'm a jumpy person. You've seen me jump oh, just God. from someone getting stabbed in a film. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. I, there's more than once I've seen you literally almost jump out of your seat into your husband's lap. <laughs> that was, that would be it chapter two. Yes. Yes, it would. Uh, but <laughs> that was the night the baby was there. <laughs> and you just, you just lost your shit and went, who the fuck brings a baby to a 9 p.m. showing of it? <laughs> Yeah, that that's a whole that's a whole topic for another episode. But we will talk about once we get back to theaters, we're going to talk about how people need to be on their better behavior and leave their rotten kids at home. For God's sake, taking a baby to an R-rated movie in the middle of the week at night. R-rated horror move. Yeah, I know. Anywho, (laughs) Invisible Man. It also speaks to the Me Too movement. Very much, it's a very much a feminist horror movie, and again, it's something that you know just resonates. And you know, it kind of sounds almost degrading to other horror movies when you say, "Well, this is an elevated horror movie because it has themes that resonate with the times, and obviously, it's got more on its mind than just scares." Well, horror has always been political in a certain way. Even if you go back and look at some of the slasher stuff at the 80s, it speaks a lot to Cold War anxieties. Yeah. And you could almost even say that teens having sex and then getting killed is an early AIDS allegory in the 80s. <laughs> you know, there there are arguments to be made for stuff like that. So I don't want to sound like I'm demeaning other horror films when I say that Invisible Man definitely has things on its mind. And it's about... Well, it's like how you know, Get Out talked a lot about, you know... Mm-hmm. Racial, racial tension. Yes. And class. As did us. As did, um, you know, a lot of other Parasite. horror films. Parasite. Which is more thriller than horror, mm-hmm. but it definitely speaks to that. 
and it's something I was like a little surprised by. I was like, okay, you know, it, I, I see the potential here. And I think the, the trailer for the film kind of hinted at it. But really once, once I sat down and really sat with it and watched, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I sort of, you know, I kind of pushed you to watch it a little bit. And I know you were kind of like, meh, but I would like to get, and I, I granted you were also in on the idea of fantasy Island, even from the trailer. And then the movie hit and you went and saw it and you were like, Oh God, what yeah. have I done? Yeah. That was a bad call. <laughs> hey, I, st- I still say there is potential in doing a more horror tinged fantasy Island. I don't think this movie lived up to that potential, especially because they tried to explain everything at the end, which is like, no, don't explain the magic. Just let it happen and let it, that be spooky enough. And you never know, you know, why this is happening or anything. It was a dumb, dumb third act, really dumb third act in Fantasy Island. But I would be interested in your opinion on Invisible Man. And I hate to say it because it also sounds demeaning, but as a woman, what you're obviously I come at it through the filter of a certain gender. I would be interested in how you look at it and see what resonates with you as well. I'll have to catch up with it then. Mm-hmm. And speaking of feminist icons, I don't think I would be such a feminist if I had bigger tits. Is a line from what is growing to be <laughs> one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Fleabag. <laughs> oh my God. Where do I start on Fleabag? Let's start with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Okay. She, in the last couple of years, is an amazing powerhouse. Yes. Yeah. She had Fleabag. Mm-hmm. She pretty much oversaw the first season of Killing, Killing Eve. Eve. And I don't know how involved she is with the subsequent seasons, but I mean, well, or if that's just Emerald, a vanity credit at this point. Her and Emerald are friends. Okay. And they have worked together on other projects. So kind of having Emerald step up and fill her shoes, I'm sure it was with her blessing. Mm-hmm. And she was in Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, As, yeah. I can't remember Lando, the droid. Lando's droid. Yeah, I always want to say K2SO, that, but that's Rogue One. Yeah, Lando's <laughs> droid that he may or may not be fucking. <laughs> wow. Think well, of the, the, go back and watch all of their interactions. Well, and you, again, and, and, Phoebe and Donald are friends. <laughs> they were friends before they did solos. So, of course, they were going to bring a little bit of that energy and, and that interaction to... Okay, yeah, they may be fucking. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even get through that. No, no, I had to think about it for a second, and then I just had certain scenes pop into my head, and it completely destroyed my own argument. Um, yeah, Solo has some weird problems, though. <laughs> and that's that's the least of them. Actually, I, that's one of the best things about Solo, I would say. <laughs> the, the fact that they take her brain, basically, and stick it into the Falcon and make that the nav computer is kind of ghoulish on a certain level. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think we've talked about... Didn't we talk about that way back when? Oh, we did. Okay. Yeah, so. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> and uh, bringing in Andrew Scott to play the hot priest in season two lent itself to one of the best pairings I've seen on television in a while. Friends, there's, there's that sexual tension. Fleabag is the story of a 32-year-old woman who is all about the sex and cannot figure out her own shit Mm -hmm. and has a sister who is 
very successful and makes her look horrible in the eyes of her family. She has a step a stepmother who is a cunt. <laughs> and that's not my words. That's Fleabag's words. Um, <laughs> and she runs a little cafe that's guinea pig themed um, after her partner... Um, her business partner, Boo, died in a car accident. So she's also working through grief. This is a comedy TV show, and it actually made Obama's best of his year list. I have trouble what? with the mental image of <laughs> Barack and Michelle sitting on the couch <laughs> watching the opening episode. <laughs> there's Yeah, because there's some funny moments. There's some deeply weird moments. There's some cringy moments. And I just there is a moment that deals with Obama. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, but yeah, that's got to be weird. <laughs> Actually, I think I think Phoebe mentioned that when she won either it was the Emmy or the Golden Globe for Best Comedy last year, and she went up onto the stage and thanked Barack Obama <laughs> for for letting her for praising her masturbating to a speech of his on the TV show. <laughs> there's just all kinds of weird stuff going on i'm definitely gonna have to put the explicit tag on this before it gets posted oh yeah i dropped the c word in there you yeah, might want yeah, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not i'm not bleeping anything i'm just like <laughs> <laughs> but um no this this is one of uh, for my generation um and i am a millennial not a gen zer no matter what people tell me um, this definitely kind of speaks to that generation. Um, Kristen Scott Thomas shows up in season two for one episode and there is a conversation that they have sitting at a bar where Kristen Scott Thomas talks about going through menopause and how it is one of the greatest things that could ever happen. And then by the end of it, she goes, the only, the only shit thing about getting older is that no one really flirts with you anymore. Not really flirting, not with danger. And she's like, I miss going into a room and not knowing. And, you know, and then she gets up and she's telling Phoebe to get out there, to do something, get out there and flirt. And she goes, well, I, and she goes, how old are you? 33. And what had Jesus done by 32? died and she's like exactly so get out there and flirt and it's it's a great little scene of the push that i think fleabag needed to kind of start realizing no i have to stand on my own two feet i've got to go out there and i've got to chase all my chances because yes as i get older i will be more respected and i will mm -hmm. be more an equal to everyone else but for now take the chances you got because you don't know if you're ever going to have them again True. And I would like to just say, because I know we're starting to get close, not quite at the end of our time, but if you're going to take a chance on a movie from this year, here's a couple more that I really liked. The Frank Zappa documentary from Alex Winter, Zappa, mm -hmm. is amazing. And I'm a, I am say that as a Frank Zappa fan, I still was learning things in this thing. And just the treasure trove of footage from his archive that they had access to and that they use is amazing. So many concerts, so much footage from across 
decades of Frank's performance life. It's just a tantalizing little glimpse of what is in that archive. And boy, oh boy, I hope they start releasing like full concert movies because some great stuff in there. Um, We didn't talk about Mank. I am not. I did not put Mank on my best of 2020. Really? Really. It's high up there. It's probably going to be a contender at Oscar time next April. I didn't Uh put any Oscar contenders on here for that particular reason. Okay. Um, Trial of the Chicago 7. Again, that's an Oscar contender. Sound of Metal. Oscar contender. Fantastic, yeah. (laughs) And we'll probably be talking more about these films. Um, Also, Soul from Pixar. I couldn't talk about that. I just watched it uh, two days ago. Okay. Um, (laughs) Those are all movies I think we're going to be talking about once award season kicks into high gear in like March and April. Uh, Also, Promising Young Woman. Could have talked about that. And considering we just mentioned Emerald Fennel. I know. Who who wrote and directed Promising Young Woman. And who was in the season of The Crown. Um, (laughs) We are actually going to probably be reviewing or or do a full review of Promising Young Woman next episode, depending on exactly when that video on demand date hits. I do have a question for you, Rich. Okay. Did you catch up on any retro films that you would like to recommend? Things from not 2020. Oh, a few. Um, uh, Back at the beginning of the year, I watched Death Trap Mm -hmm. with Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine, and it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Now, I was watching it because I was catching up on a few titles that were recommended to me personally by by a Mr. Ryan Johnson when I got the chance here we go when I got the chance to interview him at the (laughs) Philadelphia Film Festival about some of the influences on Knives Out God you are such a name dropper oh please (laughs) and that was one of the films and if you really enjoyed Knives Out track down Death Trap and watch it there's a lot that you will see that influenced Knives Out I, I watched a lot of noir this year, uh, thanks to some some of it, which was on Criterion Channel, some of it elsewhere. Finally caught up with Robert Mitchum's uh, Out of the Past, which was fantastic. I, I wanted to catch up with that one, and it was taken off of the streaming <laughs> service that I was going to go back and watch it on. It was really good. Finally caught up with Zodiac. What did you think? I loved it. Obviously, if I'm bringing it up now as one of the best of the <laughs> best of my older films that I watched for the first time, Robert Downey Jr.'s performance is great. Honestly, I think it's better and more subtle than you know his sum total work as Tony Stark. Which uh, this was, I think Zodiac was the film he did right before he did Iron Man, the first Iron Man. That timeline feels about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's fantastic work. Another film I caught up with just recently, and it just had kind of like, I just never, I knew I needed to see it. I just had never made the the big effort to, and that was the 1977 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So now I've seen all four versions. And what what is it? Like the sci-fi horror for, uh, a sci-fi horror version of A Star is Born? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they did it in the 50s, <laughs> the 70s. The 90s and the early aughts. The mid-aughts. Aye. Um, This was a great version, though. I mean, obviously, the original version with uh, Kevin McCarthy, everybody thinks is a classic. And rightly so. Kevin McCarthy has a nice little cameo early on in the new movie, which is funny and fun, uh, but doesn't stand out in any kind of way. 
There is a moment towards the end involving one of the pod people that I don't want to spoil for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, but it's caused me to jump. Again, I'm not an easy jumper, but this caused me to jump (laughs) off the couch like, yikes! And it was just so weird. But when you look back at where they set it up, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so obvious. And I love how it worked like that. And the movie was written by W.D. Richter, who also had written a few other films and is probably most noted for being the director of The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. And I have interviewed him. And I was sitting there and my heart was kind of beating after this moment. And just half jokingly, the thought entered my head. I was like, I know I have his number around here somewhere. I should call him up and yell at him for that because it scared the bejesus out of me. But those are probably like the the four older films that I watched that I I felt were the best out of all the stuff I watched. Like I said, you know, I watched a lot of noir, but that was all kind of like three, three and a half star stuff, sometimes two and a half. Yeah, um, I caught up with some noir myself um, and a lot of foreign films, a lot of French Jean-Luc Goddard pieces, mm-hmm. um, Infemme et Femme, aka A Woman is a Woman, was fantastic. I think you caught up with that as well, if I remember correctly. I only got through about half of it, and then it's it was off a Criterion channel. I was literally watching it like the last day, and I was just like, and just I was nodding off, not because of the movie, because I had had a really horrible couple of days in a row, and I was just exhausted. <laughs> um, there was a, a film that felt like a precursor to uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless called Bonjour Tritesse, um, which is not a French foreign film. But it had uh, Gene Seberg, David Niven, and Deborah Kerr that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But the two that I really need to talk about were our Dick Tracy. Okay. <laughs> the look on your face <laughs> right now. I love Dick Tracy. This I love this movie so much. I know, I know. Um, and I finally I finally just I saw it over on HBO um when HBO Max first launched, and I'm like, you know what? Well, why not? I need a noir to watch. And I dropped that in and it was, it plays with the tropes, but it has fun with the tropes and the cartoonish way that the villains are made out to be. I hated it. That was like the one part that I really hated because their physical disfigurements always showed who was good and who was bad, which left Breathless Mahoney kind of, it it felt weird. That she is both and yet has no disfigurement at all that she kind of just stands out. I know it's a, it's an ode to the actual comic book. That is how it was done. That was the style they were trying to replicate. Mm-hmm. And I, I give them credit for the authenticity. I don't think this film completely holds up. But it's still a lot of fun. Great actors. Um, a great message. And fantastic music. I mean, um, (laughs) more is great, but uh, sooner or later, you're going to be mine is just, I can't stop listening to it. That's a great, and that's a sultry song. This is a horny movie, by the way. Yeah. For a Disney film. Oh my God, that black lace-up dress that she's wearing? Mm -hmm. (sighs) (laughs) Someone called the fire department. Yeah, this uh, for for a Disney movie, this is a very very horny film. Yes. <laughs> um there's one thing in Dick Tracy that I really love. Because well, first of all, 
I think maybe some of the mat work involves some digital placing of, you know, live action footage against painted mats. But there's not a lot of it's all like old school effect work mm-hmm. or it's just live action stuff. And when all the villains are trying to escape and the cops are out and there's the huge shootout, there's that one scene where um, Warren Beatty just swivels around and shoots at the gun right as the car behind him just explodes. It's a great shot. That's the most amazing <laughs> shot. I, I could sit there and put my DVD and I'll just like loop that for 10 <laughs> seconds and watch that for like a minute and a half. I'm just, oh my God, this is so good. <laughs> it's it's amazing. And it's kind of sad that Beatty never got to uh, follow this up with a second Dick Tracy film like he's wanted to. It, I would love a second Dick Tracy film. I think uh, it, the time, unfortunately, has very much passed. I know. It has its problems for me, but the bad doesn't outweigh the good. The good here exponentially weighs <laughs> out the bad. And okay. Madonna as Breathless Mahoney, not only is it a horny little movie, she's fantastic in this film. Mm-hmm. I, this is one of the best performances I've seen her give, and I've seen her give some really shitty performances. Um, <laughs> let's not talk about her cameo and Die Another Day, let Ugh. alone the song. But she's so good as Breathless Mahoney. She just leaps off the screen. She's larger than life. And the fact that she's Madonna doesn't seem to outshadow the character. Mm-hmm. Which is very important. I, sometimes I I think like when we were talking with my stepson the other day about Benedict Cumberbatch ever playing the Doctor. I'm like one, they couldn't afford him, and two, it would be Benedict Cumberbatch. It wouldn't be the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't be able to s- separate, separate one from the other at that point. And the fact that she can play this with such ease, and you don't see Manana, it's a credit. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. And what was the other one? Dangerous liaisons. Ooh. Yeah. Speaking uh, of horny films. <laughs> this, this is another one. It's a very horny film, but fantastic cast from Glenn Close and John Malkovich down to Keanu Reeves, Peter Capaldi, mm-hmm. Uma Thurman, and of course, Michelle Pfeiffer. It's just a fantastic uh, stage play come to life. And I remember finishing it and messaging my director over at my theater company going i can't wait till i get older (laughs) he's messaging me why i go i just finished dangerous liaisons and i want to play glenn close's role so fucking bad like she is a titan on screen she's not a goddess she rules it she rules that screen she makes it hers and there, there's a, a scene near the end of this film where, for anyone who needs a backup on Dangerous Liaisons, it's two aristocrats, one who is a rake, played by the great John Malkovich, and his friend, played by Glenn Close, who challenges him to have sex with a woman and ruin her reputation and get her to admit it for... Th- those who say this sounds a little familiar, Cruel Intentions is a version of this story. Oh, yes. But when I got done, there's a there's a particular scene between Glenn Close and John Malkovich at the end of this film where he's not getting his way. He's done everything and she still won't give him what he wants. And he, he's like, oh, so you would have war. One word. That's all we need. And she went, OK. 
war and just walked off screen. And I went, fuck, I'm not messing with her. <laughs> and I was just like, I, I love this movie. I love it. It was one of the best movies I watched all year. And I didn't watch as many movies as you, but mm -hmm. I got through more films that were made in the past 40, 50 years than I did in the past three. And that by far is the top of the list. Okay. And um, let's hear it for watching older film as well as newer stuff and always <laughs> keeping uh, that mix going. And on that note, though, I think that about wraps us up for this week. Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We'll be back next time with more news analysis and a review of something. <laughs> and that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good-looking pan. And any shop girl can be a top girl if she pleases a tired businessman. Hooray for Hollywood! You may be homely in your neighborhood. To be an actor, see Mr. Factor, you make your kisser look good. Try it.